0: Hi, this is Anna Hacker from Australian Unity, and this is a podcast that will get you thinking about what happens after you die. Sounds morbid, right? But as a lawyer, my experience has shown me that most of us are unprepared. Throughout this series, I'll be joined by a variety of experts, and we'll be exploring what happens to your business, your wealth, kids, things, and even your body. You are joining us today for the very first episode of season three, we'll be bringing you an action-packed four-episode collection of stories that are designed to get you thinking about everything to do with what happens when you die, and even some of the things that happen before that. Today, I will be joined by Dr. Sonia Fullerton, who is the Deputy Chief Medical Officer at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre and is a consultant in palliative medicine. Her interests include patient-centred decision-making, end-of-life care plans, social media and health, and health IT. We are so lucky that Sonia has been able to fit us into her exceptionally busy schedule. But as someone who is an advocate for advanced care planning, we knew she was the ideal guest for this first episode. So I'd really like to warmly welcome Sonia to our program. I'd also like to, I guess, understand a little bit more about what brought you to this area of medicine.
1: Oh, thank you very much for having me. What brought me to this area of medicine? I think when I was a junior doctor, slaving away in, in the wards, um, um, I came to appreciate that although we always tried to cure people and give them um, treatment that cured their conditions, that sometimes that wasn't possible and that we as doctors and nurses and actually as a society are not very good at recognising that transition from when a person has a disease that can be treated or cured and when a person has a disease that can no longer be cured. We may stop disease changing treatment but we never stop our care and palliative medicine which is the area in which I work is about making sure that people live as well as possible for as long as possible. We don't give treatment to unnecessarily prolong life, we don't give treatment that can shorten life but we try to improve people's symptoms, improve their independence um, and their quality of life for example by supporting them living at home while they're having treatment for their other conditions.
0: And I think that that concept of living at home seems to be a bit of an aspiration for a lot of people. They want to continue living at home for as long as possible. I know as a lawyer, that's something that people will often ask me and have historically asked me to put into something like their medical treatment powers of attorney, as they formerly were, or their guardianship document, something to say, I want to stay at home as long as possible. I don't want to go into a medical environment. But... We know from other guests, particularly the End of Life doula who um, appeared on on another episode of this podcast, that it's not quite as easy as that, is it?
1: It can be complicated. So we're going to be discussing advanced care planning today and a person might say in their advanced care plan, if I lose medical decision-making capacity, my preferences are to be cared for in this way. We know from studies that around 70% of Australians want to die at home, but only 15% of Australians actually die at home. And part of my job is to work in those support services that enable people to die at home if they want to. But you're right, it is quite complex. It takes a lot of family support and also support from institutions like community palliative care teams, um, palliative care outpatient services and um, acute
0: outreach teams as well. I think as well that people probably don't want to think about this point of their lives. I mean death is unfortunately inevitable for all of us but certainly in what I do I talk about death all day. So I talk about dying pretty much every day all day as you probably do a lot in your roles as well. I think though from my experience with clients it's something people put off. Yes. The, the, the the idea of even thinking about what will happen particularly for a young client they'll say well that's so far in the future I don't even need that you know document or whatever it might be in place and we will get to that <laughs> but I think that that would be the hardest thing that you often see the the patient and I'm probably going to fumble over this because I say client you say patient and that's all the same thing but the the patient is in a, a point of their lives where they're, they're dealing with so many other things and then having to think about making decisions about end of life as well as everything without that clear mind is probably one of the most difficult things to do.
1: Everyone's really different. And sometimes we have to walk with the patient where they are. I remember I was thinking back to a few years ago when I was a young doctor, if a patient had melanoma that had spread throughout the body, the chemotherapy that we offered at that time was very ineffective. Perhaps, at a guess, only 10% of patients even benefited and no one was cured. So if a patient presented to hospital with melanoma that had spread everywhere, we would say to them, you know, you need to sort out your will, your powers of attorney, etc." Recently, we've developed immunotherapy and some patients given immunotherapy have amazing results and they the cancer almost all disappears. It may be that it's cured, it may be that it comes back later, but people's attitudes to talking about end-of-life care were really impacted by that. And a lot of times when a patient was very seriously unwell with, for example, melanoma that had spread throughout their body, they hadn't done that preparatory work that we would have done with them a few decades ago because they're really hoping for this miracle cure that some people experience from immunotherapy. And although some people do experience fantastic results, many people don't. And so my techniques for talking to people about this have changed over the years and what I sometimes say to people is that we hope for the best but we plan for the worst so that plans are in place for what might happen if the person deteriorates. It's really important because sometimes when people's condition deteriorates their cognition is infected, the way their brain works is affected and they're not able to talk to us about what their wishes and values are and that's why advanced care planning is important because we talk about these things while they're well, while everything's going okay and then if things deteriorate and they're not able to express their wishes anymore we can fall back on those advanced care plans that we've already made.
0: And, and that idea of um, you know preparing um, for the for the for the worst I think is something that certainly most lawyers look at as well because I will often say to people when they think why is this so complicated why are you making it so so well we're preparing for the worst case scenario that hopefully won't actually happen. Hopefully what we'll have is it all goes smoothly. No one will challenge your will. <laughs> there won't be someone coming out of the woodwork to say that they were a partner that you'd never, you know, you, you, you would deny in your lifetime or a child that you didn't know about or something. But if it's not there, then, I mean, there's literally, I mean, it's a they've pro- someone's probably passed away at that point. They probably died. So you actually can't do anything. And in your case as well, um, in your role, if someone is potentially lost capacity, someone cannot actually think about what is it that they want to do. It's that planning that's critical. So planning is something that I probably do with clients even a lot before you even get to <laughs> see, see them. Um, I think that it is hard sometimes for people to conceptualise what that might look like unless they're actually faced with a diagnosis maybe. But I'm sure that if someone comes in to you and says, I actually have powers attorney and other things in place what does that mean to you do you think oh that's great or oh that's good but there's going to be other things you need to think of because of what the diagnosis that you have in front of you is yeah so I think that um There are different types of advanced
1: care planning that you can do, and some are very specific. Um, For example, in Victoria, we have a thing called an instructional directive, which specifically consents to or refuses specific treatments. But the other type is a values directive where you can write down about your values and preferences, what sorts of things you might want or not want. So, for example, if I was writing mine, um, I would write a values directive that said my brain my cognition is really important to me if I have a condition that means that I won't be able to recognize my children or browse on the internet then I wouldn't want to have life prolonging treatment other people might say my how long I live is the most important thing to me the quality of my life does not matter to me at all I want to live for as long as possible so I think in general those value statements are more helpful to us because the specific instructional ones are quite specific sometimes it's confusing because they might say, for example, I never want to be intubated. But what if they fall over and break their hip and they need an operation to help their pain? They will need to be intubated as part of that process. So I think exploring with patients their values and preferences are very helpful. And then once we have that knowledge about what their preferences are, then we can apply that to unexpected situations that come up. Something that's funny is that, you know, we had this tiny thing called a pandemic recently. And I think I, I, think I heard about that. Oh yeah, it might have seen it in the newspaper. Um, it's resulted in a lot of terrible things, but I'm always trying to think of some good things that have come out of it. Um, and one of the good things for me is that it's easier for people to imagine a sudden deterioration that is not expected. In the past, when I'll say to a person who's got advanced cancer Um, your cancer might advance, you might develop this complication or that complication. Um, That's got some emotional content to it that can make the discussion more difficult. But now I say to people, let's imagine next week you get COVID and everyone can imagine that it's part of our day-to-day life. So being able to talk to people about what might happen if they got COVID takes it a step away from their immediate medical condition that they have at the moment. So it's in some ways a little bit easier to progress that discussion.
0: It's quite interesting that I mean you obviously coming at it from the medical side. I, when I talk with clients about powers of attorney, and that's not exactly that's kind of what we're talking about, but not exactly what we're talking about. It's a different sort of planning. But I'll often say, imagine you walked out here and you were hit by a tram. I
1: was hit by a bus in my
0: story. (laughs) (laughs) Melbourne, you should be really hit by a tram. I think. think (laughs) let's not let's not talk about that too much because I'm sure unfortunately I mean that happens I I think that I do recall one of um, the colleagues I worked with had that scenario kind of happen and it was one of the ones that they said I'm not going to say it anymore I'm really nervous that it might happen again so um, it's one of those things you have to be a little bit careful I think sometimes with the terminology and that's something as well I think that both in my role your role sometimes we need to be really direct and i know we've we talked um before we started recording about the d word as you you called it um i said i i am quite direct i mean the name of the podcast is what happens when i die i'm sure that in your role you need to be pretty direct with people about what you're talking about
1: yes and again it depends on where the patient is at the moment I teach medical students at my hospital and um, whenever they come in and start the new rotation I give them a talk about what palliative care is and I know that they think that palliative care is all about end-of-life care or when someone is actively dying but actually 90% of my job is outpatient or community work in improving people's symptoms and keeping them as well as possible and probably only 10% is end-of-life care where someone's lying in the bed and actively dying Um, and so I don't talk about dying with every single person that I meet. Um, When I'm thinking about advanced care planning, I might not raise that the first time I meet the patient. I will be talking more about things that are worrying them, which might be pain or nausea or breathlessness, etc. And then once I've established a bit of a relationship with them and they have some trust in me because I've helped them with their symptoms, then I can move on to a little bit more of of what we call um, end-of-life planning. And advanced care planning can be part of that. But advanced care planning is not just about end-of-life planning. As we've been talking about, you could get COVID or you could have an an accident, an unexpected accident, and lose your decision-making capacity at any stage. So I guess um, I think of it in terms of unexpected deteriorations and expected deteriorations that they might get from their cancer.
0: And, and we've had a lot of developments, um, certainly in Victoria, but across Australia, I think, to try and make this concept of advanced care planning and, and an understanding of what people's wishes are um, clearer because there's, actually, there's documents that we can actually put in place nowadays and they're, they're, they're helpfully different in every state. so, so annoying, <laughs> isn't it? I have to try to remember to use the Australian terms and not the local terms. <laughs> well, well, let's get into the nitty gritty then. What are, what's the terminology we should be using in this area? Right. So when I talk to
1: patients and families about advanced care planning, I say, if you were unwell and you couldn't talk to the doctors about what treatments you wanted or you didn't want, number one, who would speak for you? And number two, what would they say? So number one, who would speak for you? In normal everyday language, we call that the medical power of attorney. Um, The term in Victoria is medical treatment decision maker, but the term that we use generically over Australia is substitute decision maker. So importantly, this person makes medical decisions for you only if you lose capacity to make them yourselves. Sometimes people are confused about that. They might come in and say, I'm the substitute decision maker. I want to make this decision. But we say, no, your relative still has decision making capacity and the decision sits with them. So that's the first part about the substitute decision maker. The second part, What would they say? That's about the person's um, expressed wishes and values and preferences and different terms are used. But if you write them down in a legal document, we could call that an advanced care directive. And again, we use different terms in different states. I should remember to mention the Advanced Care Planning Australia website. Um, It's really helpful and it's got landing pages for each state. So if you live in the Northern Territory and you're thinking, stupid Victorians, I don't want to hear about that, jump on the Advanced Care Planning Australia website, go to the Northern Territory, Northern Territory page and all the relevant terms for your jurisdiction will be listed there and that's very helpful. And
0: we are absolutely putting that in the show notes. So please have a look there and anything where there's there's anything throughout the episode where you think, I wish I knew a bit more about that, I can almost guarantee we'll have something in the show notes to explain it a little bit more because... The whole point of this episode is so that you can all feel empowered listeners to actually make some decisions now and actually understand what your options are, not leaving it to the last minute, not leaving it until maybe you actually don't have a decision making capacity to, to actually make a decision. Now, we so we've talked about the nitty gritty of the terminology and, and sort of some of the documents um, and then the, the sorts of things that people can put in, I know that you said before people put in things like, I don't, you know, I used to have, I don't want to put in, uh, I don't want to be put into an aged care, you know, facility or something. And that was not so much in the medical, but in a guardianship document. I'm sure those sorts of conversations come up all the time and it must be um, something that you feel, it's important for people to understand, you never know what actually might happen. And we have
1: limited control. In some ways it's analogous to having a birth plan. You can put all of these things in writing about what you do want or you don't want but at the end of the day um, you, you are in a, a situation over which you have a limited amount of control. Um, advanced care planning is about having as much control as you can over the situation but some
0: things might happen that are beyond your control. And this is going to be a really difficult question and you probably get it quite a bit. I could, I'm could, i gonna guess you do have patients ask this. Who should I appoint? That is a great question. So um, there
1: are two processes, I guess. The first is to choose someone who would be a good person to represent you in making medical decisions. So we're imagining a scenario in which I am very sick and I'm confused and I'm not able to make decisions for myself. I want to choose someone who's able, who's um, ready, who's willing to make decisions for me. I would choose someone who understands me and what my wishes are. The important thing is that that person has to act on my behalf. It's not about asking that person what they want. We're asking that person what me, the patient, wants. So that person must be able to take my point of view, the patient's point of view. Um, And they must be um, articulate, they must be um, available. Sometimes people think, oh, well, I can't appoint my husband because they don't speak English or because they're in Singapore. That's not the case. We just need someone who's able and willing to make those decisions and they need to be um, able to indulge in a, a, you know, it could be a robust discussion with with the doctors to represent your wishes.
0: And we often talk as well about think about let's say there might, mu- it's often the case there's multiple kids, they're thinking, who am I going to appoint? Often for um, some they just say, I'll just appoint the eldest. But I the exact same conversation you just talked about, you need someone who can actually think about what you would want. So it, it should be the one that you, whoever it is, and it might actually not even be one of the kids, it might be someone else. Um, you need to think about who actually will make the decision when it counts because if it's someone who may, might be overcome by grief, unable to yes. mentally cope emotionally be just way too invested and yes. if your your wish is not to have your life prolonged or something I'm just saying as one example that might not be what you want and if you know that that's already the way that they're they're thinking, well maybe they're not the right person. Absolutely
1: and the problem is if that you don't appoint someone then we will select the person who makes decisions for you from a legal hierarchy. So there's a list laid out for us in the law as to who we should choose if there's no one appointed. So if for example you're married and you live with your wife or husband and there's nobody appointed we will choose your wife or husband to make decisions for you. But if that your wife or husband might not be the person that you choose in which case it's advised to appoint someone. I've had so many conversations where someone's relative will look at me in a family meeting and say I know my mum wouldn't want this but I just can't bear to let her go and that's a hard stop for me and I say no I'm not asking you what you want you know I can see you're such a dedicated and caring son and you know thank you for your care of your mother but I'm not asking you what do you the son want I'm asking you what would your mother want and it their patients' wishes and values must remain central to any decisions.
0: And that's why that other the document that so there and this is it can be very confusing to think about. There's actually a few documents, as you said, that we're talking about here. There's the one that actually has those values. The one that lawyers often do is the substitute decision making document in Victoria, the appointment of um, oh, medical treatment. Medical tra- I should know that. I do it almost every day. But I, I I think that I fumble over it because it used to be called the in, During power of attorney, in brackets, medical treatment, and that's what people always still call it. Yes. Um, Now, one thing that I have always found interesting, and I'm sure that you have a better explanation than what I what I will say, but it's one person at a time. It's not multiple
1: you can appoint multiple people but we use one person at a time so we'll take the first one and if they're ready able and willing we'll talk with them if they're not then we'll move to the next person so that's a common misconception actually that people think that they're appointed together but we talk to one person at a time the other important thing that i should mention is anyone who's been appointed under the old laws is still a valid appointment under the new laws the laws changed um, in victoria in about 2018.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that was just great for lawyers (laughs) to have to go out and explain. It's a different document. The old one's still fine, but everyone always wants the new document because they're worried that there's going to be something missing. They work exactly in the same way. It's exactly the same sorts of um, decisions people can make. It's just a different, different document. It was actually really short previously it was half a page if that six pages now yeah it's Mm. it's lengthy um but the good thing is it's quite explanatory about what someone has to do and that you actually this is going to sound silly you have to include someone's phone number i'm pretty sure from yes contact details yes
1: and their consent as well Yeah. 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 yeah
0: and everyone who's looking for those
1: forms if you jump on the advanced care planning australia website the forms relevant for your jurisdiction will be
0: there I think that this this is the one that you really need medical advice about because yes. lawyers can only say so much. We yeah. talk about financial. The medical is is a very different decision. And it's what I find really interesting in this area as a lawyer is that we can talk about who should be a financial power of attorney. And there's all sorts of legal issues and ramifications of appointing maybe the wrong person. They get access to your super or they get access to you know, assets, they could sell your home, they could put a mortgage on it, they could do all these sorts of things. That is often a much easier decision for people than who to appoint as a medical um, decision-maker and a substitute decision-maker.
1: I have a good idea,
0: though, if you're, Because people are often
1: worried about putting pressure on that person, on the substitute decision maker, but if you actually articulate your values and preferences to that person so they know what your wishes are, and then if you take the next step and fill out one of the advanced care directives, um, then everyone's clear about what, what the patient's wishes are and there's much less conflict. Sometimes um, I, I can just imagine, remember so many scenarios when I've been in the emergency department and I'm, the patient's very ill and they can't talk to me and I'm with the family who are very distressed and I ask them, oh, you know, what, what would dad have wanted? What would he have said? You know, if he were able to talk to us, what would his view be? And they'll look at me in horror and say, we never talked about it. We, you know, it's almost seemed like bad luck to discuss what might happen if he got more unwell. So we didn't talk about it. And that puts a great deal of pressure on the family to try and make a complicated medical decision and try to extrapolate what their relative would have wanted in that situation. And in discussing this before you become unwell, and even in writing it down on some documents, you take the pressure off your your family and your substitute decision makers. Um, And we know from medical studies that When patients complete the advanced care planning process, it results in less anxiety, depression and bereavement in the surviving relatives. And so sometimes, we alluded to this earlier, that people might be a little bit reluctant to engage in this discussion, and often I'll tell them, really, you're doing this for so that we all understand what your wishes are and that will take the pressure off your family who are very distressed if your condition's deteriorating. So it really benefits you because you get the treatment that you want, you don't get the treatment that you don't want, but your family also have the comfort of knowing that they're honouring your wishes
0: about what might happen. And I, th- I I believe we have said it, but just to be really clear, we've talked about that there, there's part that... And I, I, I Look, I was really kidding that. You're putting a lawyer out of, out of job. This is, this is the thing that I think it's so important to have download the document, get it, get it filled out. That's the critical part. But, that's not the whole part. The other part, the actual advanced care directive document, that's something that has to be done with a medical practitioner.
1: Yes, that's correct. So there has to be, um, it has to be signed and witnessed by a medical practitioner who are assessing that the patient um, is signing, they're not under duress and that they understand the document and that it accurately reflects their wishes. And also that it makes medical sense. Like sometimes people have said to me, oh, can my father have a brain transplant? And, you know, sometimes people might request things that are not, possible or legal in the advanced directive. And then there's another witness that verifies that the person has signed the document.
0: So yes, they do need to be signed by a medical practitioner. Mm. And that's it's really important to to think about, as I said, a financial one, there's financial ramifications, advanced care um, directives or, or planning or the, the, the Australian terminology that I should be using. That is a medical decision. That is absolutely medical. And it's something that you really need to get medical advice about what's that. That's right. Um, But also
1: there's an interplay because um, we're using these documents to make technical medical decisions, but underlying that is the patient's values and preferences. So the patient probably doesn't need to be sitting with a doctor to say, If I had severe dementia and I couldn't feed myself and I couldn't recognise my family, I would not want to have life prolonging treatment. Um, But then going to your GP or to another doctor that knows you and filling out those documents with them and getting them to sign it, it can be an important step in just making sure that those wishes are documented. But it's not the only step. Ask me what the other step is.
0: Oh, Sonia, what's the other step that we
1: need to think about? The thing is that when you've done these documents, The most important thing is, are they available at the point of care? And the point of care is going to be at three in the morning in the emergency department at the Royal Melbourne Hospital when the situation is dire. Everyone's thinking, what shall we do? Um, Can I tell you a funny story? I had a patient once in community palliative care who'd done their advanced care planning documents. And we used to tell patients to put them on the fridge with a fridge magnet but she misheard. She thought we said to put it in the fridge and she kept her documents in the fridge because, uh, and um, she was very happy with this solution because when the ambulance came, they would look in the fridge and find the documents. It makes um, sense. It does make sense, but the instruction actually should have been on the fridge. fridge.
0: We used to tell people to put them on the fridge. Maybe Um, we should hand out magnets. (laughs) Yes, my
1: fridge is not magnetic. I can't put anything on my fridge. Um, The modern solution is to upload it to your My Health Record.
0: There you go. That uh, That's actually... I had not even thought of that. That's something I'll have to start yeah. telling clients. You mm. should
1: definitely tell clients mm. this. Now, the tiny problem is um, it involves making a PDF of the document and uploading it. So that's a relatively high technical bar for people um, and also it relies on then the the doctor or nurse at the pointy end at the point of care looking in in your My Health record to find it. So what I do when I'm doing a document with someone, I photocopy five copies, I take one and I send it to my health information service to scan into our medical record and that puts an alert on the patient's medical record. But if they, um, this is a medical record for the Parkville precinct and if they turn up to Box Hill Hospital which belongs to Eastern Health they won't have access to that record. So the other five copies I hand to the patient and I ask them to keep one, give one to their substitute decision maker, one to their GP, one to any other hospital at which they might present and then those health systems put those documents into their medical record and put in a flag so that it comes up. Um, But unfortunately um, our health system is quite fragmented and complex so it's, it is still a good idea to have a paper copy that you can carry in your handbag or, or have available on your phone so that you can show people when necessary
0: and the the my health record this is I should know this but so that that is something that all hospitals and practitioners medical practitioners can access it, we're moving towards okay that. so but that's what you, so yeah. yeah
1: but I think it's um it's had variable um penetration yep. so so some people will look at it and some people won't yeah so at the moment unfortunately I think the main thing we rely on is the patient saying I've I got an it. advanced directive and then Investigating to find a copy of that. Um, but we're hoping to improve the techn- technological
0: solutions over time. I'm sure it's not all on your shoulders, <laughs> although, the way you said that. <laughs> You're working towards a solution. I'm doing a lot of work
1: (laughs) at the moment um, and it's at different levels. So at the health service level, we have to make sure that we have systems in place to be able to record advanced care directives and put alerts on so that they're immediately viewable to the clinician. Um, And at the patient level, we have to do things like this so that people understand what an advanced care directive is, what a substitute decision maker is, and they start to have those conversations.
0: Yeah, you don't know unless you know. exactly how else are you going to find out other than through education it's it's such a critical part of not just get you know you need the documents but you need to know you need the documents first correct and some um sometimes for
1: example this might not be very good lawyerly advice but a patient (laughs) might come to me and say um we're talking about advanced care planning and i say you know if you were unwell and you couldn't make medical decisions who would who would you choose to make decisions for you and they might say my husband john And then I will say to them, if you want, you can appoint John as your medical treatment decision maker. But actually, John's the first in the hierarchy if you don't appoint someone. So if you want, I can just make a note that you've selected John. You don't need to go through the formal legal paperwork, but we know it's John. After that, we move on to a discussion about the person's values and preferences and make sure that john's aware of them Um, often people will they're not that well and they might say to me oh you know i don't want to go through the fuss and bother of of writing the forms Um, and that's okay for me i can make a note about what their values and preferences are but the most important thing is that they have that conversation with john so that john knows um, what the wishes are and then if we're in emergency department we will ask john you know what did she say? What did she say about these sorts of issues? And John will be able to report that to us.
0: And and that's actually look, that's not very good loyally advice. No one can. It's fine. That's we like say the I'm same thing. <laughs> <laughs> You're allowed to say it. Um, we we say the same thing because, mm. it, as I said, the financial one people understand um why they need a financial power of attorney it seems a bit maybe black and white i'm not quite sure but it, it is a really hard decision to think who will make that medical decision for me mm-hmm. and we do say look the reality is if you don't even have the document in place there's a higher <laughs> we say exactly that so we do actually talk to to clients about there is a bit of a backup, but what usually happens is there's multiple children and they want Correct. to be really clear about who it is. And yeah. it might not be the eldest, it might be the nurse, which for obvious reasons is yes. a good choice for a medical, yes. um, medical decision Absolutely. maker.
1: And sometimes people don't want to have that conversation with their family because they're worried about upsetting people. But it's 100% better to have that conversation over Christmas dinner or um, at a family dinner and get it all ironed out rather than have a dispute after the person's become unwell and lost capacity and then uh, it's very distressing to have to try and sort that out later. So it's a better idea just to have that discussion up front and then um, it avoids that difficult situation when when you're in a bit of a crisis later on?
0: Mm. I, I actually as a as a law student um, was lucky enough to do a subject called legal issues in medicine Oh, and I won't say which hospital we went into but we did actually have a whole day in a hospital and were able to observe legal issues in the hospital. We no one often mentioned we were law students everyone assumed we were med students <laughs> so we were able to get into some really interesting scenarios including into you know an operation where um we, we had consent to go in, but they didn't realise we were law students and not med students, so as soon as they realised, they stopped talking. Um, <laughs> I think they were a bit worried about the lawyers in the room, even though we weren't technically lawyers at that point. But I did actually ex- see exactly what you're talking about with the next of kin or the mm. th- that sort of hierarchy of decision-makers in play because uh, people didn't seem to have documents, so they'd no. be in an emergency situation I was able to see the way the doctors um, interacted with the patient, the 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 family of the patient. And I must admit, it just seemed really... This this was... Uh, I'm going to show my age. It was over 15 years ago, almost 20 years ago. So it was a while ago. It was before I think there was a real understanding of how important this is. Um, yes. There was the medical treatment power of attorney in place, but again, that had no instructions. In effect, you weren't meant to put instructions in it. So it was really basic and so people didn't know what um, the, their, their family member wanted. And so doctors were trying to understand and trying to talk to lots of people. And as a law student, all I could think was, this is going to be a disaster if they disagree.
1: Yes, absolutely. We, we are very lucky because we do have uh, mechanisms that we can undertake if there is a dispute about what the correct treatment is. Um, if we people always ask me, oh, can my medical treatment decision maker or my substitute decision maker, can they override my wishes? say for example either patient said I don't want to have life prolonging treatment and then I lose capacity can my medical treatment decision maker say let's turn everything back on let's proceed with the resuscitation etc against my wishes Um, and they can try that but if we feel we doctors feel that the substitute decision maker is not acting according to the patient's values and preferences then we've got an escalation that we can um, undertake Um, we have a fantastic lawyer at our hospital we're so lucky and she knows everything and so if there were a dispute then we would talk with our legal team at the hospital and then escalate that up um, through the office of public advocate to um, determine what's best and sometimes you have to do emergency hearings. I've had to do that once, an emergency court hearing at the bedside overnight when there was a dispute between um, myself because I uh, didn't feel that a particular decision was in the patient's best interest and the patient's substitute decision maker. Um, And it was um, a a very positive experience actually. Um, uh, And the, the legal system was very responsive to this crisis. Um, we had to make a decision right then and there. And um, uh, they were very helpful in resolving that dispute.
0: That's good to hear because I don't feel like the legal industry gets the best rep when it comes to probably intervention in in medical. All I can think is in-house. I don't know if you ever watched that. Um, that's actually my married name is House. And so oh. whenever I go into a hospital, or my husband goes in, um, everyone always says, oh, do you see there's House? And he's G House. So I don't know if you watched it. It was from quite a while ago but his name was Gregory House anyway it causes a bit of a fuss (laughs) it's quite funny people keep remembering him but he seemed to be in court all the time (laughs) he seemed to be overriding everyone's wishes and I think it does create a bit of a, a fear maybe in people that doesn't really matter what I think it's going to be overridden at some point but it's good to hear that that's actually not the experience of someone who literally would be at the, the cold face here yes. of dealing with this. If there was going to be problems, yes. you would see them and you've had one where it's gone to court. One where it's
1: gone to court. court.
0: And I'm sure you see lots of conflict lots within family, of conflict. Sure. And in my
1: job, that's part one of the reasons that I might be brought into a situation when there's a discrepancy between the medically recommended course and the course of action that the family or the patient want. I think the flip side is probably more common where Doctors are worried about this. This is why doctors can be reluctant to do advanced care planning. They are worried that the patient will say, I want to have a brain transplant, a liver transplant, I want to have CPR, I want to have all of these um, treatments um, that we, the doctors, would regard as being futile. Let me give you a a made-up example. You're 98, you've got end-stage dementia, you're not able to feed yourself, you're uh, when you swallow things, they go into your lungs and you've got advanced cancer that's spread throughout your body. Me, as a doctor, when I'm thinking about what treatments might be appropriate for this person, I would say this person is dying and I don't want to interfere with their natural dying process. I do not want to administer um Intravenous antibiotics. I don't want to give cardiopulmonary resuscitation, where you've seen this in house, where you jump on the chest and pump on pump on their heart. Looks
0: really good in in the movies it and looks in TV. Right in yep. the movies,
1: yep. in real life, it doesn't work. So you cannot medically resuscitate a 98-year-old with dementia and um, cancer that's spread throughout their body. It will absolutely fail. And in my point of view, that's a futile treatment and it's being cruel to the patient because there's no chance of them benefiting from that treatment and the treatment will harm them. It will break all of their ribs. It will be a terrible experience for them and then they will die. Um, And so I, as a doctor, am not ethically obliged to offer that treatment because it's a futile treatment without benefit to the patient. But if the patient, not the patient, this patient, because they have dementia, but if their substitute decision-maker said, I want you, you must do CPR or I will sue you, that's the sort of situation where there's a little bit of conflict. And I think that's something that really worries the doctors. But again, in real life, uh, there's only that one time that I've actually had to go to court um, and all of the other times we've managed to talk our way through just by explaining that it's not like on television. Um if you have an out-of-hospital arrest and you have CPR, it's very unlikely that you will walk out of hospital well. And people, because of what they see on television, have an unrealistic expectation of how successful our treatments will be.
0: Yeah, and that I think that it's it's probably a lot about that relationship building as well with the family yeah. because they're they're going through such a traumatic experience. All they they just can't see the reality of actually what's happening, and that's fine. They just need probably some time. Yeah, but. You know, lawyers, we're not here just to be weapons as well. You know, I think people think I want to do this and therefore I'm going to get a lawyer to force it to happen. I think we have a lot of ethical boundaries around what we're allowed to do and help people yes. with. And, and there's there's certainly somewhere maybe that is in, in conflict with um, sometimes maybe um, what a doctor's or medical practitioner's decision would be. But at the same time, those scenarios, that that's that's something that probably the movies and TV have... To blame for because yeah. they, they really have put a very unrealistic expectation of what happens and yes. I think that's for so much in life but I'm, it's just sad that it's also in death that people don't understand. I I have yeah I unfortunately did experience in a workplace someone ha- having a cardiac arrest and mm. um, chest compressions and no she did not survive and that oh, was so something that you know I've, I've talked about on, on other episodes and it just comes back as I think we all thought she will walk out of here this will yeah. not walk probably at that point but that she will get better and it's just not actually what happens and I think it, it, it is really difficult when all you see in the movies is all these things happening all this intervention and then suddenly mm. miraculously someone wakes up it's just not actually often what what the no. what reality is
1: There was a study I can't remember the um I can't remember the um name of the study but a study was done recently where they looked at CPR in television and on film and the outcomes were breathtakingly more positive than the outcomes that we see in real life Um, but the other tricky thing if, if an intervention never worked of course it's easy but CPR and things like that sometimes do work, um, especially in younger people with reversible conditions. Of course, ev- everyone who collapsed in the street would be getting CPR. But if a person is very elderly with multiple chronic diseases or with cancer that's spread throughout their body, um, it's almost universally not successful. So it it just it depends a little bit, but it's not as simple as saying. This always works or this never works. The truth, as always, lies somewhere in between.
0: And and it sounds like something that I say a lot on this podcast, which is advice is really critical because you can't just go on what you think or what you've seen on TV or anything else. You actually need advice from professionals. And this isn't lawyers I'm talking about. This is clearly medical practitioners. You need to listen to your your doctors and, 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 sure, get opinions of, you know, but in the end, you need to actually listen to the professionals here. Yeah, and we talked a little bit um, earlier about um, the actual
1: dying process, and that's another thing where um, it's represented quite differently in the media to what it's like in real life. And commonly I'm talking at the bedside of a patient who's dying with their family and I actually will say to them it's it's not like it's on television and I, I go through the, the dying process with them and the sorts of things that they might notice physically in the patient and often on television it's portrayed as being quite a, a quick thing with the patient alert and talking and looking at you right up until the end and then they suddenly die. Um, but in real life, it's a much more prolonged process with a lot more hours or days of being in bed and asleep and not really responding. So I think the media does portray things a little bit differently to how we experience them in real life.
0: And it probably wouldn't be as quite as entertaining, um, not in a positive way, but in just a, they kind of need to make it quicker, don't they? That's right, for the yeah. dramatic effect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which, which does make it difficult when you're trying to say that's actually not what what actually happens. Yes, that's right. So you've been so generous of your time today. I am very aware that we've been speaking actually for quite a while. Um, I, I think that it's probably important to see if there's anything that you feel listeners should we've talked about the things that are important but what are the things that they really need to take away from this episode? Oh great I should have
1: thought about this in more detail. (laughs) So I think (laughs) the important thing is that um, when you're thinking about advanced care planning and decision making at the end of life there's two important aspects. One is If you were unwell and you couldn't speak to the doctors about what treatments you wanted or you didn't want, who would speak for you? And that's your substitute decision maker. Jump on Advanced Care Planning Australia website to get the forms. You can legally appoint them. And if you don't legally appoint them, they may be selected from a hierarchy for you. So if you have strong views about who would make medical treatment decisions for you, jump on Advanced Care Planning Australia website and check out those forms in your jurisdiction. And the second thing is that That person, your substitute decision maker, needs to have an understanding of your values and preferences around medical treatment. Have a conversation with them um, and have a look at the forms in your state for advanced care directives you might be asked to write down things like what's important to you um, what would you like to avoid who would you like to be present when you die you know just sorts those sorts of questions and that will really assist in taking the pressure off your friends and family if you are very unwell because they'll be able to rely on your written wishes. And the very last, most important, not the most important thing, but a very important aspect of this is communication. So if you've done an advanced care directive, but you put it in your fridge, it's not gonna have any impact on the care that you receive when you're unwell. Make sure everyone knows that you've done this up, you can upload it to your My Health Record or just send a copy in the post to your GP, to the local hospitals that care for you, to any other agencies that are involved in your care. And that way that if your condition did deteriorate and you weren't able to say to them, I've got a copy of my advanced care directive in my bag, um, they will be aware that it exists and they'll be able to look at your wishes.
0: And they really do influence the care that we will give you. That's a really important thing, I think, that, um, that all of the listeners need to Remember, if you haven't told anyone, it's almost like it isn't there. Correct. It's
1: like it doesn't exist. It's yeah. invisible.
0: Yep. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much um, for everything today. You've really just been so generous with everything you've talked about. And I think that this is one of those episodes people are probably going to to get off. They're going to go straight to the website and they're going to download those forms and, and make sure that they're filled out. So thank you so much. I think it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. It was a very fun interview. Thank Wonderful. You. Thanks, Sonia wow thanks to Sonia for such a robust practical conversation about advanced care planning links to the website and supporting documents mentioned in this episode will be in the show notes as always if you like the show please rate review and subscribe and make sure you tell your friends thanks so much for joining us today